podcast. My name is Tim Peterson. I am the senior media editor at Digiday. And I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. Kaylee, you had the interview this week and you spoke with Josh Stinchcomb, who is the chief revenue officer of Dow Jones, as well as Leslie Yazel, who is the head of content for the Wall Street Journal's new commerce brand, BuySide. So why is the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones getting into the commerce game now? Right. So that was the first question I asked, I believe. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting time to come into the commerce space. I mean, as I've been covering the past couple of weeks, there's been some, um, I guess, new approaches to commerce that publishers have been taking given changes to consumer behavior, you know, a looming recession, things that are kind of impacting the success of, of commerce businesses to a degree. So it's an interesting time to kind of come into this space now after two years of commerce really being, um, you know, strong performers uh, at the start of the pandemic. And I asked, you know, kind of why this is something that they're doing now versus earlier, quite frankly. And I think what's interesting about starting now is the approach that the Wall Street Journal is taking with their commerce brand buy side is it's less about just recommending products and more so recommending products through a financial and, and personal finance lens, which is, I think, kind of an interesting approach that they're doing. And, and during a, a point where people might be looking at, you know, how to best invest their money or, or you know, which products get the most bang for their buck, um, it seems kind of like a good time for them to be coming into this space. Um Josh did say that this has been something that they've been thinking about for um, a number of months, if not years. Um, so it's an area that they've been interested in, but I think they wanted to take a very specific approach. And right now it just kind of worked out that their approach kind of fits the times a little bit, um, you know, with just people being very conscious about their money. Right. And it also makes sense since like, I mean, a lot of the publications we've seen jump into commerce have been more consumer oriented publications, right. whereas a place like the Wall Street Journal, like I don't know that I'm going to go to the Wall Street Journal's website to figure out which mop to buy or something like that. Um, with that, like, what's their, like, what kind of clients are they catering to given that they have, you know, somewhat of a more unique focus than just like general interest consumer audience for commerce? Yeah. So their approach editorially is very interesting to me because they work with covering consumer products, um, you know, perhaps mops, but more so like maybe at home, uh, like exercise equipment uh, is one of the articles that they had featured at the time of recording this episode. But on the other end of things, they work with insurance companies and financial institutions and credit card um, companies. And they work with these companies who have a higher barrier to entry when it comes to affiliate partnerships and therefore takes a little bit more effort for publishers to start working with them um, from a client perspective. But the payout tends to be a lot higher. And Josh talks about this a little bit as well. Um, you know, the financials of partnering with a, a credit card company can be a lot higher than it would be to sell a lipstick or a mop, for instance. So that's kind of the financial like incentive in the approach that they're taking to their coverage. Uh, but then, you know, you look at their more consumer product side and it's also interesting how they approach that too. Cause you know, with at home fitness equipment, you might be like, well, why would the wall street journal care too much to write about that? But the writer that approached that article talked about it through the lens of, you know, what's the value of buying uh, an at home rowing machine. And, and at what point does it, the cost justify itself versus paying for rowing classes at a gym. And they kind of, Leslie says this, do the math for you to help make a purchase. Um, and I do think that that makes sense through the lens of the wall street journal, but you're right, it's it's definitely a different approach from what we've seen other publishers do in the commerce space thus far. Interesting. Curious to hear more about that in the conversation. So let you take it away. Thanks, Kayla. Thanks, Tim. Leslie and Josh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. How are you? Great. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm very excited to have you guys on. Um, I have recently been covering a lot in the way of commerce and how that part of media businesses have been changing lately. I feel like there's been a lot of kind of movement. Um, but Dow Jones, Wall Street Journal, just got into commerce with the launch of BuySide. So it's perfect timing. Um, but I'm curious, I guess, to ask you guys, like, why now? Why now get into commerce? Why now launch a new site dedicated to it? 
and you know what the kind of vision is for Byside in terms of uh, having a commerce business as part of the media, I guess, package that you have. Sure. Well, I, I can jump in there. Um, you know, we're we're new to this particular commerce initiative, but we're not new to helping people make decisions. In fact, that's been the mission of the Wall Street Journal and and even the other brands in the portfolio, Market Watch and Barrons, really since their inception to help people make informed decisions about how they spend their time and money. So for us, it's a, it's a very natural extension of the brand. Um, and I think we saw an opportunity uh, to expand uh, the application of that mission uh, and in the process expand our business opportunity uh, and have the, the benefit of looking out at the landscape and what a lot of other publishers uh, are doing in the space, learning from it and, and hopefully improving on it. And so I'm also curious, like, you know, commerce, um, online shopping had a big kind of growth period a couple years ago at the onset of the pandemic. Um, You know, in terms of launching this product, was there a reason that it was something that came up this year, 2022? Or had you been thinking about having this um, in the works for you know, a couple of years. I'm curious about the the like timing of the launch, if it's been, you know, a project that's been kind of circulating in the background for a little bit. Yeah, it's something that's been discussed for uh, a number of years. Uh, and certainly since um, our relatively new CEO, I think he's about two years in, uh, took over, it became a, a priority for him. And so we've been working on it in uh, in various ways for over a year now. Uh, the the first six months <clears throat> was very much about researching the space, understanding the mechanics of the business. Um, like I said, looking at what else is out there, uh, good, bad, and otherwise. Uh, and then the last six months have been about building the site and building up uh, the content for launch, building the team. Uh, so um, it's been a, a a goal for a while and, and now a reality. And to your point, there was a big surge in in uh, sort of affiliate e-commerce during COVID, for for obvious reasons, um, I know there's been a you know a slowing uh, of the growth of some publishers in this space. But you know there's going to be ebbs and flows. I, I I look at it on a longer time horizon. You know we're in this for the long haul. I think the overall trend towards more shopping online is undeniable, uh, mm-hmm. and, and still you know and if if not its early phase, it's it's sort of early mid phase. So. Um, you know, we were not trying to time any part of the market or follow a particular surge. Uh, we were doing the research and, and launching it when we were ready and bullish about the future. Got it. And I think what's what's kind of interesting about that is looking at the website, there's a lot of coverage around like managing finances and figuring out ways to save money. And, you know, right now we're looking at this, you know, I guess, looming recession. People are starting to think about their personal finances a little bit more closely. And I think there's the way that you're approaching the commerce content or the content for buy side is really interesting to me because there is that, to your point, Josh, a very much like um, advice driven uh, how to manage finances kind of element to it. But obviously there's the affiliate commerce piece as well. Um, Leslie, can you talk a little bit about the reason why you decided to lean in more in the like financial advice side, working on the, uh, I guess, analysis piece of like which credit card you should use um, and, and things of that nature? Because it's not like a cut and dry, like this product you should get and this is what you should buy kind of thing. There's there's the advice piece to it, too. It's a very interesting mix and, you know, timing it around the recession, I'd imagine you guys didn't realize that there was going to be a recession <laughs> happening right now, but it seems like a very kind of interesting approach. Yeah, I think you've described it well. We have consumer goods that we're selling, and we also have personal finance advice, um, which you know we also can monetize some of this, and Josh can talk more about that. But at the heart of this are money decisions, whether you're buying a coffee maker or whether you're deciding which credit card to choose or should you switch to a high-yield savings account. Um, And we feel that WSJ.com has great authority there. We want it to be useful for people. But I also think, you know, we're well-positioned for um, the economic situation now because one of the main things we do is we really tightly curate for people and we do the math for people. So when I say we tightly curate, 
when you travel around the internet and look at all the best lists that are out there, sometimes you see 19 best credit cards, you know, 12 best whatever. We really narrow that for people. When we talk about cashback rewards cards, we narrow it down to four so that people can really have an easier decision. We create a criteria for this. We work with a panel of experts in the financial services industry and we spreadsheet relentlessly to narrow this down. We do the numbers, um, but we also do the math for people. And what I mean by that is whether we're looking at, you know, should you get one of these coffee subscriptions that are so popular now? We don't just look at the tasting notes and things. We also look at, well, how much does it actually cost per, per ounce? Because um, you can compare that then with what, you're, what you might be buying at your favorite market or grocery store. Um, we had a great writer who I like, Logan Hill, do a piece about his love for his water rower exercise machine that he got during the pandemic when he stopped going to the gym because he can, he can watch Netflix and movies while he works out. And I said, you know, it's, it's, some people would consider this pricey. Like, what's the math on it? What, did, what do people pay for a gym membership and over the course of two years, how did that compare with the price you paid for this and came out quite favorably. But, but we do that kind of math for people. So we're not just saying, oh, this product is great. We're saying like, this is how this might fit into your life and into the way that you're choosing to spend money. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested also to kind of hear about how broad you go with the product side of it, because I mean, to your point, if it's rooted in kind of like maybe cost per use or, um, you know, does it actually save you money to buy the at-home maybe Pilates machine versus going to a reformer class, you know, a few times a week? Um, I'm curious, you know, how broad you take it, um, the scope of the products that are on buy side. Because I think, you know, when you think of e-commerce um, sites in general, if it's very rooted in recommendations, you can kind of do whatever you want in that regard. But, you know, if you're looking at the scope of personal finance, you know, how does that kind of influence the product side of it? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that we make decisions about what we're covering from an editorial perspective first. We also look at search volume because we want to be responsive to what people are actually searching for and what is, you know, hardest to make a decision about. Um, and then, uh, you know, and then we step back and test and look at sort of what are the best products out there. Are we going to consult with experts to present this? Are we going to do our own sort of buy-side rated rigorous testing that we do, which we spend a couple of months um, on that, depending on the product? So that's a little bit of our sort of decision-making process and how we come to those conclusions. Um, and we do try to give, you know, a full user journey. So you mentioned how we, you know, we'll have advice as well as just here are things you can click on and buy. And that's just, you know, a part of the brand and the service that we're creating. As Josh says, we're in this for the long haul. We're creating a brand where people can come to and feel that we're giving trusted advice. What's the kind of timeline that you look at when producing content for the site? Because I know, uh, I think Josh, earlier you mentioned that there was about six months of time spent to like fill up the site with content. Um, Leslie, you mentioned that there's also a few months of testing certain products when you are doing more of the like tested recommendation um, side of it. I'm curious, you know, if you're looking at something where it's like, these are the credit cards that we kind of crunch the numbers on. I'm sure that takes maybe less time than testing a product for a few months, but I'm curious kind of like what the mix is of time that you dedicate to the content that you're putting out. And also what the mix is of having more product versus like financial advice um, in terms of content output. I mean, I think it's like a mini newsroom in some ways because we are we're planning well out um, for some of the longer term things and at the same time we might hop on a trend we will be sort of all systems go for prime day and things that are sort of shopping holidays um, for our readers so it is a real mix of of long-term planning looking at seo trends when do we want to start um you know, when do we want to publish so that we can start getting views so that we're really ready when there's a spike in search? This is just a natural part of the business and what other commerce sites do as well. Um, and we want to be really responsive to what people are interested in. So if trims burble up, you know, we saw the price of gas going up and immediately talked about, well, what's useful for people? 
um, you know, driving around town looking to save a few pennies is less useful. We did a piece about how you can make a real material change in your car costs by looking at your insurance, by looking at the type of car you're driving, by looking at some other choices to do with um, what's happening in your life with your vehicle. So we do try to, to be super responsive and we can move quickly, but we also do a lot of planning for those, for those bigger picture testing terms. And like the mix between maybe a product recommendation versus uh, what maybe I would consider more financial advice content, is it like a 50-50 mix that you aim for? Or is that more so dependent on, again, what you're seeing in like SEO searches and, and trends and things like that? It's early days. So some of this is test and learn. I think that we have more product recommendations than advice at this point in the game. Um, but we will pivot depending on sort of what is working for readers. We pay a lot of attention to our metrics and, you know, we're very data informed in that. So that could change as time goes on. And I th- Kayla, I think you, you, you point out something interesting though, which is, you know, there's a lot of sites out there that focus on consumer products. And then there's sites that are very much focused on personal finance products, services, and advice. You don't see a lot of publishers or brands bridging that gap. And I think the journal has a, a unique opportunity to be successful in both of those arenas. Um, we have obviously the financial heritage and the search authority that comes along with that and the expectation that we're going to cover financial services uh, in some capacity, even in this new venture. Uh, but we also cover, you know, on the weekend paper and off duty through the magazine, a lot of, of consumer categories as well. Uh, and so that's one of the I think pretty unique opportunities afforded the journal is to play in both spaces. Uh, and that's not something I've seen a lot of anyway. And it does, good point, Josh, it does open up some sort of product categories that are sort of hybrid between consumer goods and personal finance. So, you know, we write about insurance, we write about pets, and then we write about pet insurance, and that can link to, to either of those stories. We write about um, you know, wedding gifts and things for weddings. We write about budgeting. We write about wedding budgets, and that sort of touches both parts of content. So we do have these sort of unique opportunities um, from a content perspective as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know what you were saying about um, seeing other sites kind of do the financial advice piece of it. I mean, at least in in what I've learned from covering commerce for some time, the commission rates tend to be very good on you know. I guess, leads to like a credit card or um, insurance and things like that in ways that I think commissions off of product sales to a degree are limited, right? If you're recommending lipsticks, you're only going to make, you know, a certain percentage off of that. Um, I'm curious about the monetization part of it, like how that kind of comes in. I mean, in your early experience with it, like is monetizing through the financial advice a really lucrative you know, area that you're seeing? Like, how are those kind of commissions or how are those deals really set up? And are all of the pieces that you're doing in this space, do they have that kind of commission on it? Or does the commission, I mean, there's an editorial integrity there too, right? Like if you're recommending a credit card, you're not going to recommend it just because they give you a really awesome deal on it if you get someone there. I'm curious about the like piece of the commission of it, and if the financial advice is as lucrative as I've heard it is. Yeah, well, the, the, the first thing I'll say is, you, you're right, the content team under Leslie writes whatever they want about the products they think are the best, whether we have a means to monetize them, you know, from day one or in theory ever or not. Uh, so there is total independence between uh, the content creation and the monetization side. Now, of course, we want to offer users the opportunity to fulfill a transaction and, and ultimately where we can get paid as much as we can to do that. Uh, but that happens almost sort of secondarily to, to the creation of the content. Uh, you're right that commission rates on financial products tend to be higher than on consumer products. It's tied to the lifetime value of a credit card consumer versus, to your example, a purchaser of, of lipstick. Uh, so, you know, I think the the size of prize around financial services is, is greater, uh, I think, than around consumer products. Uh, but it's 
an incredibly competitive space as a result. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of, of money to be made, but there's a lot of, of people trying to make money. Um, so, um, you know, that's one of the benefits, too, of having the balance between the two. You know, we'll probably have some things that are quicker to monetization and quicker wins and some things that may take a little bit longer to manifest but ultimately represent a bigger long-term opportunity. Uh, and we can, you know, balance those. Uh, but yeah, that's, um, you know, a, 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 I think an, an accurate uh, interpretation of, of, of the, the world of affiliate commissions. Yeah, for sure. And I when I touch on pricing models a little bit too, uh, maybe later on, because I just wrote a story that uh, is talking about a, a, slighter, a slightly new pricing strategy for commerce. But sticking with like the financial services for a second and looking at um, maybe like deals with credit card companies, you mentioned that there's a lot of competition there. Um, but it also kind of indicates to me that maybe you need fewer people to convert on these things to make it like a, a profitable kind of link, I guess. Um, I'm curious you know, if you could talk a little bit more about the competition side of it and what those deals kind of look like with the financial service um, companies. Like, is it a lot of direct deals that you're executing on? Is it something more along the lines of like, I don't know, do they act in like the skim links kind of area? I'm curious how those deals kind of are formed and how customized they are to, you know, your partnership, your audience, et cetera. Yeah. Um, You know, the the financial services space is, is, more complicated. There's compliance issues that don't exist in other categories. Um, you know, you have to sort of prove yourself with a lot of uh, of, of issuers of credit cards, as an example, uh, before you can become sort of a you know sort of accredited uh, affiliate partner for them. Uh, and so that's that's a process. You've got to sort of earn and prove your way into that and show that you have the the proper sort of compliance and, and are putting the proper resources behind being compliant. Um, and that's a barrier to entry. Um, to your point, there are big competitors out there, but, um, you know, there are also uh, competitors who are partners. Um, Red Ventures is, is uh, you know, the operator of some pretty big sites in the space like Bankrate, but they also have a really sophisticated publisher-friendly affiliate offering. And so we work closely with Red Ventures uh, and we're able to, um, work with them to be an intermediary to a lot of financial institutions uh, because they have a very you know thorough understanding of of the compliance and the complexity, uh, and they can you know help accelerate uh, our participation in that market. And so um, you know I guess somewhat akin to Skim Links in the consumer space, Red Ventures offers uh, sort of an affiliate network solution that a lot of publishers use. Uh, us among them. Um, and they've been a, a, a really fantastic partner, actually, uh, to date and will be for some time. Got it. Got it. I guess I know a little bit more about like the consumer uh, side of commerce businesses, just because that typically tends to be what publishers are focused on when they're launching sites around this. Um, I am curious if you can kind of share like a, a breakdown of what like an average commission might be on the financial services side or what you've started seeing so far. I know it's early days, but I'm curious like how that tends to compare because I imagine something like uh, sports betting, right? Like that category has huge commission rates for, for publishers like sports, uh, sports publishers are getting, you know, hundreds of dollars when they refer people to, to DraftKings, for example. But I'm curious like how they tend to compare on the financial services side compared to maybe like, you know, the, five to 20% commission rates that you see on like consumer products, right? Like I'm curious, like what the kind of average is that you're starting to see. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's early days as, as you pointed out. Um, it's also, uh, I think more varied in terms of the models. And I think I read your piece about sort of CPC versus, uh, you know, cost per acquisition, um, you know, the different sort of currencies in this space that are evolving. And on the financial services side, it is a combination of cost per acquisition, cost per lead. Uh, So there's different models. Um, You know, on certain kinds of products, it can be sort of a percentage, you know, of a, you know, loan size. In other models, it's a sort of flat fee of I'm just making this up for illustrative purposes, you know, $50 for every new, you know, verified credit card lead. And so, um, you know, on average, I think those bounties 
you know, do end up being greater per capita than on most consumer products. Back to the point that the the sort of lifetime value of that customer to a, a credit card issuer, for example, is 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 greater. Um, so you you know you'll often have a, a range or a, a fixed fee on a cost per lead or a cost per new customer acquisition, um, and those can change over time too. You know, because as you grow and deliver more volume and more success, you know, to a particular uh, uh, issuer, as an example, um, you may be able to negotiate better, you know, uh, sort of per capita rates. And so um, I I think they they are on average higher. Uh, There is a range uh, and that range can grow over time, you know, as you grow uh, as as a builder of their business. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I guess, I mean, kind of condensing all of this into one question, do you see financial uh, services as being the kind of breadwinner of of the commerce business? Or do you think that maybe the barrier to entry and to your point, kind of getting um, all of the the ducks in a row to become partners with these, um, with these partner, with these companies, I guess, prevents the the opportunity for this to be like the the lion's share of where you're seeing commerce revenue coming in from. Yeah, well, I, I think as Leslie said, you know, we're going to learn a lot, uh, and we will be responsive to what we learn. But we are uh, committed to this category. Um, you know, beyond the monetization, I think it's just something that people expect from the journal, uh, and, and that uh, an area where we can offer value, valued and valuable advice and provide a service. Um, And to your point, you know, if we can succeed in the space, uh, I think that creates a bigger opportunity for us in the long run than if we were to just focus on consumer product categories. And so um, I think the barrier to entry does keep certain publishers out of this space. Uh, But the Wall Street Journal is not certain publishers. We're the Wall Street Journal. Um, You know, I would argue we've got uh, as much right as anyone in the world to play in this space. And so we're going to take advantage of that for sure. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. I also want to talk about the team that um, is working with you, Leslie, and, and how you're identifying talent to kind of come in and play in this, I guess, it's a very, to your point, you said it's it's operating like a newsroom. There is a lot of editorial integrity that you're putting in place here. Um, I also feel like there has to be a degree of certain, um, like, experience when you're talking about things like crunching the numbers and looking at, you know, the pros and cons of personal finance, right? You can't just have someone who's experienced in writing commerce content. They have to also have a financial background to a degree. Can you talk about your team and and what you looked for when you were kind of developing the newsroom for BuySide? Yeah, you've really kind of identified it because I definitely spent more time thinking about people's journalism experience than their commerce experience. I wanted experts because this is, you know, a business built on expertise. We need to be able to show people that this is, this is trusted information, um, well-researched and authoritative. And so, you know, when I looked for personal finance editors, I'm bringing people in from Reuters, from Money.com, from 10 years of writing about markets on Dow Jones Newswires. Um, you know, one of our personal finance editors is a certified financial planner and brings that expertise and that ability to give advice. Um, our uh, consumer goods lead spent years at Real Simple at Airbnb Magazine, has worked a little bit also on the retail side um, uh, at major retailers doing content and has that viewpoint. And then, you know, our senior staff writer spent years at Wirecutter writing about electronics and brings a lot of expertise there. And then we are fueled by a lot of amazing contributing editors, contributing writers uh, who freelance for us. And we look for expertise in those areas as well. Um, And so that's just you know, helping the reader know, oh, this is trusted. I know who these people are. I can read about their background. I can see that they've been doing this for years. This isn't just someone who's made a specialty and I know how to do a product roundup. That's not what we're about here. It's a journalistic enterprise. And our editors don't see um, some of the numbers that you and Josh have been talking about. They don't know which credit cards are monetizing at a higher rate. They don't know 
um, what a per page avenue, average revenue is for something they've written. That's all separate because we just want to make good editorial decisions, you know, with no influence from other factors. I wanted to ask too, you had mentioned that a lot of your editorial kind of strategy and looking at which um, things are trending comes from analyzing SEO. Um, But I'm also curious if you're working at all with like the Wall Street Journal and looking at what's, you know, trending over there or what stories have been getting a lot of clicks. Like, is there any kind of crossover when you're looking for topics of coverage or, you know, questions about how to manage personal finance? Like, how much do you work with the Wall Street Journal side or the other brands under Dow Jones to inform the content that you're putting out on buy side? We're a separate team, so we do feel pretty separate from the newsroom, but we're all looking at the same sort of, you know, headlines and what's coming down the pike and responding in our own ways. The journal is responding in a news-driven way of giving people information. We're responding in a way of helping people make a decision that's going to lead to an action and a purchase or or another sort of decision there. And so I think it's like the way that we react to, you know, higher interest rates to higher gas prices is different, but we're all kind of looking at the same consumer pressures in order, in order to do that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the SEO piece is really interesting. We have a great um, SEO manager and we're lucky that she has both, you know, content and product experience, which when you're building, you know, when you're building a site, that's really useful for us. So we've been able to to really maximize that and feel like we can be extremely responsive to to what people are actually searching for day to day. I think you had mentioned this as an example earlier, but the story I saw on um, the the homepage of BuySide right now is that gas prices are up. Here are five ways to cut your car costs, which to me is a really interesting approach to a story that would be on a commerce site because it seems like it would be such a broad kind of story in terms of like it's not a traditional roundup, right? Like you're looking at like things that are related to your car. I think you had mentioned like um, instead of driving around, like here's ways to cut your like gas prices. I don't know. It's an interesting approach to this story, right? So I'm curious like how that story kind of came into development, but then also Josh, like how that story is monetized too, if it is currently monetized um, because it's such a, a broad kind of roundup, in my opinion. I mean, there's a lot of stories you look at um, at other commerce sites, and it's like, these are the best, like, mattress covers, or these are the best uh, comforters when you're a hot sleeper. Those don't is, help Those don't help you with your car costs, though. <laughs> they do not, <laughs> but they are fresh in, in my you mind. You stay in bed longer and drive less, maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, yeah, now that one was just on my mind because it is it is a hot summer and I need a, a lighter comforter. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'm just curious, like that story is like an interesting approach, I think, and kind of ties in what we've been talking about for your approach to this, um, you know, commerce content on buy side. I guess, like, how did a story like that kind of come together? And then again, going back to that monetization question, like, how do you approach something of, of that nature? Yeah. And, and some of that comes down to your earlier question about um, our staffing and having people on staff who are experts in this area, who are qualified to give financial advice. So, you know, this is not the first time that gas prices have been high. We know sort of what actions help and what don't. And and part of what we do when we say we do the math is helping people make significant savings, make significantly good decisions that will impact their bottom line. So we said, well, you know, you're not going to drive less in most parts of the country. That's just silly advice. And you, you do see some roundups out there. You've probably seen them of like, oh, make sure there's enough air in your tires and this. And that's all fine advice, but that's not real meaty financial service. And so what we've done here is say, you know, you could refinance your car loan. You could take a look at what you're paying for insurance. You could look about whether based on your car and your experience, should you drop collision? Should you... Um, you know, should you think about trading in your car for a different model even? Like that's a big one, but that's sort of what we end that story with. Um, You know, should you, are you getting all the car insurance discounts you could? So when you look at a piece like that, then from the business perspective, well, you can monetize the insurance aspect as people can go and search for better insurance and and put in their information into a calculator. Um, And you can look and see well, should people look into loans? Should they look at refinancing their car loans? So there's a number of things there 
on the monetization side. On the pure editorial and reader service side, we're telling people, you know, we, in that article, I don't know if you got a chance to read the whole thing, but we look at sort of, you know, do this, you could save as much as $450 a month. Do this, you could save $75 a month. And we try to do those numbers and show like, here's what the impact could be for you. Um, And that felt like more robust service and advice than just focusing narrowly on gas. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Leslie mentioned there are certain recommendations in there that can be monetized through, you know, an affiliate partnership. Uh, But there will be certain recommendations inside of a given story that don't have a path to monetization, and that's okay. Or even stories that, you know, entirely have no immediate monetization opportunity. So, um, you know, that's part of of what happens when you give the content team sort of the editorial freedom to write what they think is useful. Um, We'll monetize what we can. Uh, and uh, the the rest of it will chalk up to providing a good service, which helps build our brand, which, you know, helps drive more, you know, direct traffic over time and more trust. And, you know, that monetizes itself, you know, in other ways over the long term. So we're not sort of maniacally focused on every single thing we say has to have an affiliate link, uh, but it's it's a mix. And that's a great example of a story that has some paths to monetization and, and some components that that don't. Yeah. I mean, we may write about student loans and that may not have a monetization aspect, but because, you know, this has been an issue with the student loan pause, it is important content to readers and we'll do that. And I think this is kind of a special situation. You know, I come from newsrooms at the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post, and I really wanted this to be a, a journalistic endeavor with high standards. And it's been great when Josh brought me on and we had these discussions of like, well, what if the top credit card that, that we choose based on our criteria and our, our um, expert advisory panel and our spreadsheeting, what if that's not one that monetizes? And Josh said, we should do what's right for the journalism. We're building a brand. And that kind of support from Josh and from Alma, our CEO, has been, been really great for the editorial team. You know, we feel pretty, pretty lucky to be in this environment. Got it. Got it. Um, and another element of BuySide that I was interested in is that it's not a paywalled product. It's, it's an open product. Can you talk about that decision? Because, um, you know, you look at a product like Wirecutter and there is that, you know, subscription layer to it. Um, what was the decision to keep a paywall off of BuySide? And is that something that, you know, eventually might change? Or do you find that having it just completely free and open is the best kind of strategy? Yeah, well, look, I, I, n- I never... Never want to say never, but the strategy right now is to make it as ubiquitous as possible. Um, we know that a lot of our best traffic will come from search, where people are, you know, in the middle of, of, a, of a shopping uh, process, uh, and we want them to be able to find us and flow through and, and execute on that, whether they're a current subscriber of the Wall Street Journal or not. And so, there's certainly no immediate plans to put any of this content behind a paywall. Now, that said, you know, we're already starting to talk about, you know, is there an experience on buy side for members that is differentiated uh, from the non-member experience? There's not today, but in theory, there could be. And I think that's, uh, you know, a way to acknowledge uh our members and create membership benefits, subscriber benefits, uh, without putting, you know, the entire core product behind a paywall. So, you know, we're, uh, we're just a couple of weeks old, so I'll, I'll give ourselves, uh, I'll give ourselves some latitude. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're, we're already thinking about that, you know, and, and how do we, uh, you know, how do we think about the experience for members, whether that's, these are hypotheticals, you know, special offers or limited editions or whatever the case may be. You know, and it's been interesting, too, in our very short life to date. Uh, we're seeing that about half of the users who have come to the site are current members and half aren't. Uh, you know, whether those trends will hold over time remains to be seen. But, you know, it's a mix already. Uh, but you could start to, to get pretty creative, I think. Uh, and thinking about how you augment the value of a subscription, you know, with this new product, uh, short of making it only for subscribers. Got it. Yeah. I was curious about the audience acquisition piece of it, too. Um, You know, something I think interesting recently is um, looking at 
I think BuzzFeed in their in their first quarter earnings report said that um, there was a few factors that impact their commerce business. One of them being, you know, Facebook's algorithm or audience not really kind of serving them the way it had in previous times. And you know, I've been thinking about the referral side of it for for commerce publishers in the past um, few weeks since that. But it sounds like SEO is a big part of your strategy, and I think it is, generally speaking, for a lot of commerce-focused brands. But I'm curious what other kind of audience acquisition plays you're thinking about, whether it's like a newsletter or trying to get members or current subscribers of other um, of the other brands under Dow Jones to buy side or how you're promoting it across your brands too. Like, What are some of the strategies you're thinking about in terms of introducing people to buy side since it is such a new product? Yeah, well, I'll let Leslie speak to uh, products like a newsletter, um, but just a, a comment on on sort of search, you know, as a source of traffic. I think it is a major, if not, you know, uh, the major source of traffic for most of these uh, affiliate review sites. Um, there's a logic to that. It's where a lot of people start their purchase decision journey. Uh, and so they're sort of telling Google uh, that they're in the market for something. So it's high intent traffic. Um, you know, look, anytime you're dependent on Google or Facebook or any other third party for, you know, a significant amount of your demand, you are somewhat vulnerable to uh, algorithm changes and changes in strategy at those companies. Uh, that's to some degree the the world we live in. You know, it's a uh, we live in a platform world, and 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 we learn to to navigate it uh, as best we can. And there have been a number of of algorithm changes related to affiliate sites from Google in recent weeks and months. Um, you know, my read on it is generally they're trying to sort of cleanse the market from maybe some of the less reputable affiliate sort of link farm sites, uh, and really focus uh, the the publishing community on doing the kinds of things that are in the interest of consumers uh, and valuing those uh, in how Google ranks sites. And so we obviously pay a lot of attention to that. The good news is a lot of the things that they're signaling are important to Google are already important to us. Like, you know, original photography is a means of sort of showing that you've had hands-on products, you know, expert uh, opinions, um, you know, systems of analysis that uh, differentiate people uh, who are really putting in the time and effort to do it right from people that are sort of just scraping at the surface. And so, you know, we're we're optimistic that what's in the interest of the consumer and Google uh, is is aligned with how we're approaching it. Um, you know, so that's uh, just a, a perspective on Google specifically. And, you know, the same will be true for some of the social socially uh, uh, driven, you know, traffic as well. But Leslie can speak to some of the things we're doing sort of internally and with our own platforms to drive awareness and, and demand. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, search is big, and I ran the SEO team um, in the WSJ newsroom. So when these algo changes come down and say, oh, we're going to punish sites with thin content who cut and paste product descriptions into their articles, we shudder not at all because that's not at all what we do. So um, so these are our we feel well positioned from that point of view. We definitely want to scale. We're excited to launch our newsletter. I think we've had something like 1,500, 1,700 people sign up. Josh probably knows that number better than I do for our newsletter before while we're only two weeks old. So that's been nice. So we're excited for that and to sort of um, bring people timely product recommendations through that mechanism. Um, you know, I'll be excited to expand our social and to talk with people about personal finance on TikTok and other outlets where that conversation is robust and interesting and where we think we can add value. Um, so we're really, we're looking at expansion um, and we just want to reach people where they are. I am curious about the social strategy piece of it too, because I mean, to your point, TikTok, I think financial advice is actually, a, at least for me, it's something that comes up on my For You page quite frequently. I don't know what that says. Um, but it is a it is a very interesting kind of play that you could enter into. And I'm curious about the other kind of social strategy pieces of it as well. Um, I was speaking with, I believe it was Wirecutter, actually. And they were saying something along the lines of like more entertaining kind of uh 
condensed reviews of products is a good strategy that they're seeing for social work. I'm curious kind of what your social approach is, um, what you're thinking about in that regard. Is it similar, like very entertainment focused or, you know, how is, how does social kind of speak to you as a, as an avenue for getting more readers to the site? I I think some of this is test and learn, but we're definitely, you know, looking at Instagram as a great outlet for us. One of our differentiators is trying to think about sort of the the look and design of products, very focused on what is essential and functionality, but also thinking about, you know, I don't know if you've had this experience, Kaylee, where you get to the end of a product reviews article and there's the best product for you. And you look at that and you say, I actually don't want to wake up and see that on my kitchen counter every morning. I really want something that looks a little better. So some of our criteria looks at design and different choices, customizations, and colors that you can have with different product lines. So Instagram being such a visual uh, medium is a place for us. And some of what we've done is, you know, we quote some of our our pros and our experts about products on there. So people can say like, oh, that's what people are saying about this product. That's interesting to me. We're trying a lot of different methods. We're showing some of the products really up close. We're using some of our great original photography um, you know, I come from the world of Real Simple, so we're using the same sort of prop stylist for some of this who we used for, you know, covers of magazines and, and having a good time with visuals so that we can really show a product from all angles, really give people a sense of what they're getting. Um, and, you know, we're on Twitter and Facebook now as well. Please follow us. Uh, and we're hoping to expand beyond that as well. Well, I know we're nearing the end of our conversation, but last question I had um, I guess in general, uh, for Josh, I'm curious, you know, what are the revenue goals for commerce um, at Dow Jones and, and, you know, for buy side specifically? And then uh, the question I'll, I'll shoot over to you, Leslie, is what are your kind of audience goals for this year, especially leading into Q4, which is holy quarter for most commerce? But um, yeah, Josh, start with you. The first thing I'll say is, you know, we're in the, the enviable position uh, of having a really strong business already. Uh, you know, we're coming off of, of two incredibly strong years overall at Dow Jones, but uh, more specifically in the advertising uh, arena. Uh, and so we're not coming into this from a position of desperation uh, or, you know, a, a need to replace a, a sort of a declining line item on the, on the P&L. In fact, um, you know, we are, we're in a really strong position. And so that's that's a nice sort of way to go into something. I think it allows you to be a little more strategic than tactical, a little more long-term than short-term. Um, but, you know, like everyone, we're, we're facing, as you started the conversation, uh, a likely recession, I'll say, uh, that can impact advertising budgets. I think, you know, I'm just back from a, a week in Cannes, and, you know, what I heard from most CMOs is not so much about sort of budget reduction, but maybe a shift between upper funnel and lower funnel spend, um, you know, and, and affiliate, you know, commerce is driven by affiliate marketing budgets, which are, you know, often, uh, you know, part of the advertising mix, just the lower funnel. Uh, and so I think it helps diversify uh, what we bring to not just consumers, but to brands that we work with uh, and help support their businesses in, in other ways. And I actually think it's pretty well-timed given uh, what's going on in the market right now. So, um, you know, I can't disclose, you know, our exact financials or financial expectations for, for buy side, but, um, you know, we are, we are optimistic that we can grow the revenue uh, pretty quickly. We have a lot of inherent advantages, uh, you know, with the search authority of WSJ.com generally, uh, what I think is a really smart approach, a product mix that's largely unique. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're anticipating, um, you know, getting, uh, you know, covering our costs and then some in relatively short order. And mm -hmm. I think the, the potential is, is, is gigantic, you know, especially because we can play in both the personal finance and consumer arenas. Yeah. And quickly, just going off of that, because I had a whole list of questions around advertising that we didn't even yeah, get we'll to. Have to but, do, uh, <laughs> we'll have to do a 2.0 podcast. You tell me when right. you come back. Yeah. Um, I mean, quickly, just kind of going off of that, are you doing you know direct deals with brands on the, uh, on the buy side side of the business uh, at all? Like, I know some publishers do like flat fee kind of deals where it's, not quite branded content. There's not really any kind of oversight that the brand gets, but they still kind of execute on, um, you know, 
guaranteed placement and, and things of that nature. Um, do you have brands kind of coming to you asking for things of that nature because it is that lower funnel kind of focus that yeah, you mentioned? We're, we're, we're just, we're just beginning to the, the, the intention is not to have any kind of branded content or pay to play content. So that's not part of our strategy at all. Um, but I, I do think there are going to be more and more opportunities over time to do more direct affiliate deals with with brands. You know, at launch, uh, we are leveraging a, a handful of of partners, Amazon, Bankrate. I've mentioned a couple of our, already. Uh, but I think over time, as we scale and you know begin to have a better sense of you know categories that that we're going to lean into more, uh, we will do more direct deals. You know, there's a financial incentive for us to do it. It dimensionalizes the conversation with a lot of brands with whom we already work. Uh, and that's one of the benefits, I, I think, of having this endeavor, you know, uh, live adjacent to the advertising business here in so much as it's part of my world as well, uh, is we've got an army of, of fantastic sellers who are out there talking to senior marketers at all of these companies already, you know, and I, I think that will give us uh, you know, um, an advantage shared by some other publishers who are in this space, presumably, but it will give us an advantage in, you know, getting to direct deals. But I, I think it will always fall short of guaranteeing coverage or any kind of paid placement, because uh, that, that would undermine, you know, the entire sort of journalistic spirit of this thing. Got it. And Leslie, the, the question about kind of audience goals and, you know, outlook for Q4. Um, I'm curious, you know, what are, what are you hoping to achieve yeah, at the back half of this year? Yeah, it's super exciting. You know, we know how long it took our competitors to, to get to a million page views per month. And so um, my plan is to beat all of them. Uh, but the thing that's really exciting is to figure out sort of what is engaging people, what's helping lead them to a decision? How are we helping people with their lives? And I think that, you know, with our sort of test and learn and data informed decisions, it'll, it'll be great to see which story formats actually lead to that, to see, you know, what's most effective for people, where we need to change, where we need to go, you know, we have articles we have utilities. Where's the sweet spot for that, for bringing people in to make a decision? So I think that'll be the most exciting thing is to figure out what is working and then just really double down on that as we go into that exciting time of fourth quarter, you know, Black Friday and holidays and all the, all the shopping holidays that come around that time. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for joining me on the podcast. This has been a really interesting conversation. I appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Kaylee. And thank you for listening to the Digiday Podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode.